Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. Good to be in the house of God today. Good to be with you all this morning. I'm excited for us to continue in our series on the book of James this morning. If you have enjoyed and appreciated what we've been learning from James. Anybody? Isn't it powerful? It stirs us up, doesn't it? Amen. Challenges us. This is one of those challenging, um, challenging book studies. And, uh, Man, I'm just glad that you're sticking with it. Amen, I really am. I, I was telling the prayer team this morning, uh, when we get into a, a series like this that comes with challenges to our hearts, that challenge us to grow deeper, um, it's always, it's as much of a challenge to communicate it to you as it is, I think, sometimes to receive it. And so my prayer, especially in a series like this, is always the same. Lord, Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive the word that you're giving to us that's ultimately going to create great change and transformation in our lives. And so that's been my prayer. It will continue to be my prayer that God would give all of us collectively eyes to see, that he would enlighten us to be able to, to receive and to live out the things that he's challenging us from his word. Amen. Uh, I understand that summer is, we, we talk a lot about summer as church leaders, uh, and summer is the time of when go on vacation and do their things and run here and run there, hither and thither. And so uh, I was talking with a, a group of dear friends of mine who are all pastors uh, this week. We talk once a month uh, over Zoom, and we were, we were together this week and talking about how oftentimes summer can feel discouraging for those leading churches and for those attending. When you see people and there's extra chairs that are open and it doesn't, you know, maybe not, doesn't feel like uh, it normally does on a Sunday. Uh, you know, we're preaching to the choir this morning. Y'all are the choir. Y'all are the, y'all are the people who have committed to be here consistently. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for, for, for prioritizing the things of God. It is so important and it is going to become increasingly important throughout the course of our lives and throughout the future days that we as the people of God prioritize the things of God. And so I just want to say thank you and I just want to say good for you for prioritizing the things of God and being here this morning. There's a billion options. We live in a world of options, y'all. Like tons and tons of options. We have more options available to us now than, than any other human beings in history. And since we have more options available to us, the fact that we choose to honor God with the options given to us and with the time given to us says something about our faith. So I want to encourage you this morning. Your faith is strong. Amen. And I just thank you for being with us. Thank you for putting God first this morning. Amen. I'm pulling my timer up. I'm not checking my text messages just in case anybody was wondering. Amen. At the beginning, if you've been with us this summer for this series, you know that we've been talking about our core values as a church. And we've been taking time for just a minute at the beginning of every sermon 
to just review and remind ourselves of our five core values here at Hope Church. These are the values that govern and determine the culture here at Hope Church. These are the things that set the thermostat for who we are as a church. We value five things here. Number one, we value God's word. Number two, we value God's presence. Number three, we value God's family. Number four, we value God's culture. And then number five, we value God's character. And today we're reviewing number four, that the fact that we value God's culture. What does that mean? Did you know that God has a culture? Did you know that the kingdom of God has a certain culture? What is culture? Culture is who you are and what you tolerate. It's who you choose to be, is the culture. Every family has a culture in their home. Every marriage has a culture within it. God has a culture. The kingdom of God has a culture. What does the, king, what does the culture of the kingdom of God look like? Number one, it looks like honor. Honor, man. You know that I honor you this morning? I do, I honor you. You know that I honor God's word? And we all should, amen? How many people would love to just honor God's word more? Just all the time, just make a bigger place for it in your life. See, God's culture is a culture of honor. Honor is what opens doors to relationships. Honor is what opens doors to God's blessing in our lives. Honor is one of the key principles that we can learn to live with in the culture of heaven. Excellence is another thing. How many of you know that heaven is excellent? Amen. Come on, y'all. They make streets out of gold up there. That's pretty excellent. Amen. When you're going to get to heaven, there are no potholes, man. Amen. They got great infrastructure in heaven, okay? <laughs> no, excellence is very valuable and is very important. It's a key component to the kingdom of God. We believe here at our church that if we're going to do something, we ought to do it well because we represent the kingdom of God. So excellence is a priority. And then thirdly is integrity. That's the character that we operate with when nobody's looking. Anybody can have a great church service and preach and get people to shout when everybody's looking. But what does the quality of their life look like when nobody's looking? We value these things. We find them of increased and supreme importance here at our church. So today we're celebrating core value number four, and that's God's culture. Amen. Does that stir you up? Because it blesses me a ton. You could turn with me, if you would, to James and we're beginning chapter four today. Let's make our confession of faith out loud together and then we'll pray and jump into the, to the word. Let's make our confession of faith. You'll see it on the screen together. Maybe you've never done this with us, but this is something we do every Sunday. We declare this out loud. Thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you, my heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today, I am growing in the things of God. We believe that we're growing in the things of God. Let's pray today. Father, we love you this morning. We're so thankful for the opportunity that we've been given once again to come before your word with hunger, with humility, with desire to receive. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to breathe upon the word today that our hearts might perceive it, that we might understand and, and be given great clarity into your thoughts, into your intentions, into the way that you want things done. Lord, would you give us your grace today, not only to receive your word, but to do it, to live it, to become doers of that which you've spoken. 
We thank you that not only have you spoken, but you are still speaking. So we ask you to speak to us this morning, Jesus. And we'll be careful to give you the praise. In the mighty name of Jesus, let everyone say amen and amen. Hallelujah. Um, Just a quick moment of review before we read from the beginning of chapter 4 today. As you know, we've been covering basically half a chapter per Sunday on our way through the book of James. And it's been challenging, it's been fun, it's been exciting, it's been all of the above. Um, But I want to do just a moment of review before we read from today's verses. Uh, Who can remind me or tell me, you can shout it out, what the theme of James is? Anybody want to take a stab? Mature, grow up, I've heard a lot of grow up, yeah, that's good. That's that's the that's the street lingo for for um, for James. We said at the very beginning the theme of James: maturity through divine wisdom and through authentic faith. Maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. We spent last week talking about divine wisdom and contrasting the difference between heaven's wisdom and wisdom from the earth. Y'all remember this? It's powerful, wasn't it? All through scripture, God is saying to his people, this is my way of doing things versus your way of doing things. And how many of you could say with real honesty, you've walked with the Lord for long enough to say, I've tried it my way and I've tried it God's way and God's way always works better than my way. Amen. Can I get a witness? Hallelujah. It's true, isn't it? James starts to contrast this heavenly wisdom versus this earthly wisdom. And what I love about New Testament authors like James and Paul is that they take a deep dive and they take almost a surgical approach to to God's wisdom. If you go back and you look in, in the older, you know, the Old Testament and Proverbs and things, it's full of the wisdom of God. But one of the challenges for Old Testament folks versus who we are today, how many of you are glad that you're a new creation in Christ this morning? That, that God doesn't live out there. He lives in here. He lives in our hearts. And, and, and because that's the case, wisdom becomes accessible, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Jesus blew people's mind when he said to them, it's not what comes out of a man, or excuse me, and that was, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man. See, there's, there's, the, the approach and the desire that God has is that things happen inside first and then they grow out. Uh, and that's the beauty of God's wisdom is that we're not waiting to grasp it somewhere out here. His wisdom is resident on the inside of us because he is resident on the inside of us. Amen? So we said that worldly wisdom sounds like this, me and mine. Right? We said that worldly wisdom can be summed up in, in, in self-interest, self-promotion, self-preservation. We said that even you know, any parent can, t- can, can easily understand what worldly wisdom looks like. It sounds like me and mine, and it sounds like I'll fight you if that's what it takes to get mine. Worldly wisdom opens us up firstly, according to James, to confusion. And secondly, to every kind of evil work. You see, if you and I live with the attitude and the motivation of I'm here to get mine and I'm going to take you out at the knees if you try to get mine first, 
you will guaranteed be in confusion for the rest of your life. That is a promise from the Bible. Amen. How many of you would love just more confusion in your marriage? No, no. We need to learn how to walk with a sense of humility in our lives. Now, he contrasts this by talking about heavenly wisdom, and he gives us this list of things that we can find when we find heavenly wisdom. Number one, heavenly wisdom, God's wisdom is pure. That means it's true, it's real, it's certain, it's authentic. In other words, God's wisdom is actually wisdom, right? The world's wisdom is something else. The second thing is that it's peaceable, meaning it's full of peace. It leaves you whole, not lacking. The third thing is that it's gentle, which means equitable, fair, and mild. In other words, not harsh. God's wisdom, although it may be in stark contrast to the way we live, the way he gives it to us and the way he shows it to us is not harsh. I've said this before and I said it again last week. The Holy Spirit's the velvet hammer. He'll, he'll confront you with something that's an absolute necessity and an absolute need, but he does it in such a way that your heart doesn't cry for rebellion, it cries for repentance. Hallelujah. Number four, it's that it's willing to yield. I asked you this question, what's more important, being right or being at peace? Number five is that it's full of mercy. It's quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold on to bitterness. It's just hurting you. How many of you figured this out? Bitterness doesn't do a thing for the person that you're bitter towards. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't help them. It, they're completely neutral. Bitterness hurts you. I like what Joyce Meyer said one time. She said, holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it kills the other person. It's stupid, man. It's filled with good fruits, God's wisdom. Filled with good fruits. In other words, you like what you're producing. You ever bite into a sour, I bit into a sour peach yesterday and it was awful. What happens when you bite into fruit that you don't like? Ugh. That's what earthly wisdom looks like. Ugh. But God's wisdom is filled with good fruit. It's filled with things that you're actually excited about. And then finally, it's without partiality and without hypocrisy. So it's very consistent. God's wisdom is very consistent. As a matter of fact, I had this additional thought this week. I was sitting at the table a couple days ago and made a note of this, uh, that heavenly wisdom is eternal, but knowledge is contextual and it's temporal. We seek after knowledge all the time, and there's nothing wrong with that. But wisdom will always trump knowledge, and one of the reasons is that knowledge is contextual. And wisdom has no context. It's eternal. I'll give you an example of that. If you were to drive a car in 1924, operation of that car would look completely different than operation of a Tesla. You see, there's knowledge, but it's completely contextual to the era that it's in. You might, you might be really good at driving a Model T. Doesn't mean you're good at driving a Tesla. And vice versa. Knowledge is completely contextual. It's dependent on the environment that it's in. Wisdom is eternal. Right? What, what, let's keep it in the same context. Let's keep it in the same, uh, in the same analogy, rather. Wisdom is how to drive a car safely and well. Having the, knowledge, or excuse me, having the wisdom to operate with responsibility behind the wheel. 
See, that's wisdom, and that's, out, that's available, and that's applicable, and it's relevant in every situation, even when the knowledge falls short. So we're not after knowledge, we're after wisdom. Amen? Wisdom is a revelation of the truth, the exact nature of reality, and it works in any context. Okay, so let's keep going. That was a good review. Only took eight minutes, praise God. I love my timer, man. I t- I never used to preach with a timer, and since I have for the last several years, I, you couldn't get me to preach without one. It's awesome. Okay. So we're going to read down through verse 10, beginning in chapter 1. I'm going to just tell you right up ahead, or right up at the beginning, this one hits hard. So just remember that you love me, okay, as we're going through this. James chapter 1, that was meant to be a joke, but I can hear you guys are turning, so that's, that's no problem. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Boy, these are good scriptures to skip over when you're doing your Bible study, aren't they? They're just like, yeah, I don't want to read that section. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Talk about a verse that gets taken out of context. You ask, verse 3, you ask and yet you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Boy, aren't you glad that he gives more grace? God resists the proud, therefore, he says, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. So encouraging. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I know, amen. Amen. See, the kids get it. We're the ones that struggle with it. He's like, yes. That was so awesome. (laughs) Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, this, this starts with a deep sense of challenge, but it ends with a deep encouragement. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the scripture says. He will exalt you in due season. That's what Peter said. And then James is telling us again, humble yourself before God and he's the one that's going to exalt you. It's powerful, powerful to think of. So let's let's just dive in like I like to do and just kind of go verse by verse here. The chapter opens up with the continuation of the thoughts that James started in chapter three. You may remember this from last week, but I mentioned how James turns a corner in chapter three and enters into a whole new realm of discussion. And he's continuing that here in chapter four. Uh, And specifically with regards to strife and the results of earthly uh, demonic wisdom. 
Okay, so verse one, he says, wars and fights. Let's read it. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Wars and fights. I think it's interesting use of language there. I take that to mean the big ones and the little ones. Wars and fights. Sometimes, you know, any married people can attest to this. Sometimes you have fights and then sometimes you have wars. Right? Like a war is like when you just don't speak for the better part of a week. A fight is like, no, I really want mashed potatoes instead of rice. Right? God, we fight over the dumbest stuff. James says wars and fights. I take that to mean the big ones and the little ones and everything in between. You know, strife, until you look at strife as an enemy in your life, you'll have a very hard time keeping yourself from it. Let me say that again. Until you look at strife as an enemy in your life, you'll have a hard time keeping yourself from it. I think it's extremely important that we develop a sense of hatred for the things that God hates. And strife is one of the things that he hates. Amen. I think, I think we need to get to the place where we're crying out to God in our private time before him saying, Lord, make me love the things you love and make me despise the things you despise. Change my heart until my desires are your desires. Y'all know what Psalm 27, 4 says. It says he gives us the desires of our hearts. Well, it's real easy for God to give you the desires of your heart when your heart desires the same thing his heart desires. Amen. So Paul, or excuse me, James asks a question here and says, where is this strife coming from? Where do wars and fights come from? He says, I'll tell you where they come from. They come from selfish lusts in you. Thanks, James. (laughs) Now, I, I want us to step outside of the book of James for a second to get a little bit of help with this. And a little bit of context. Turn with me. Just hold your fingers there uh, in James. And turn with me over to Romans chapter 7. Paul's going to give us a little bit of a window, a a bit of an insight into this. Romans chapter 7. And we'll read from verse 21. Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me. Notice it doesn't say within me. It just says with me. We believe that when we get saved and give our lives to Christ, that the evil that was in our hearts is eradicated. Amen? And that from the moment we become saved, the moment we become transformed on the inside out, we become a new creation in Christ. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5 says that now all things are of God, who's reconciled us to himself. You've heard me preach on that scripture before. So he doesn't say that there's something wrong within me, but he does say that there's evil with me. In other words, there's something always present in everybody's lives that is attempting to get them to engage in sin. Because whether we like it or not, sin always has and always will cause separation between God and man. To the the sinner, it means that there's a total divorce from God. To the person who has not been saved, sin has created a gap between them and God. That it requires Jesus to build a bridge across. You, You follow me? 
However, to the believer, sin still creates separation. Doesn't mean that you're no longer a child of God. It just means that y'all aren't speaking, right? Just means that we're having a, we've, we've had a break in fellowship. So the enemy is always present to try to lure you away into some kind of sin because that sin always has and always will create a break in fellowship between you and your father. It's like an argument in a marriage. Every time my wife and I disagree, we don't stop being husband and wife, but maybe we don't talk for 30 minutes while we go in the other room and cool down. Amen. I'm just so happy that my wife and I are different from one another. She needs space and time. I am an immediate verbal processor. No, let's deal with this now. Let's get it done. Honey, it's Thanksgiving. We're at a table with a lot of people. Let's talk about it in the car. I'm just so glad that we're different. I love you. Let's keep going because I got a lot to talk about and we're going to get in the weeds here. I find then a law, Paul says in verse 21, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to my inward man. You see, your heart always wants to go after the things of God. But there's another law at work. And where is it working, he says? It's working in my members. Let's keep reading. It's working in in our flesh. I see another law, verse 23, that's working in my members. And what is it doing? It's warring against my mind, the law of my mind. And it's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see, your flesh... Though you've been saved, sometimes your flesh gets tempted to go do things you used to do when you, before you were saved. Amen. Not just me, right? Okay, y'all experienced making sure that I'm not alone. No, Paul says that, that there's, this, there's this pressure from the outside to manipulate my flesh into doing something that's contrary to the will of God that's not beneficial for me, that's going to cause a a break in fellowship between me and my father. He says, on the inside, I want to please God. But there's this pressure from the outside to get me to go against what my heart is saying. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Watch what he says in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who's going to do, who's going to set you free from the thing that's trying to corrupt you from the outside? Let me ask it this way. Who has set you free from the law that is trying to corrupt you from the outside. If you go to Romans 8, we don't have time to go to it, but he keeps the argument going to Romans 8, and he says, there is no more condemnation in Christ. And praise God, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Praise God. Sin doesn't have to rule you. And this is what James is trying to remind us of. Is that, hey guys, where does wars and fights and all this stuff come from? It's coming from your flesh. There's some desires in your flesh that are just screaming to be noticed. How many of you figured out your flesh screams? It doesn't just talk, it screams. If you don't believe me, stop eating sugar for a week. 
Better yet, fast breakfast. If you're really, you know, fast lunch too, you'll find out real fast. (laughs) You'll find out real fast that your flesh doesn't talk. Thank you, Mr. George. Your flesh doesn't just talk. It screams. It hollers to be noticed. Here's the reality of the whole discussion. This is what James wants us to understand. What we become servants to whatever we consciously and consistently yield ourselves to. We become a servant to whatever we yield ourselves to. You yield yourself to God consistently, you will have no trouble serving Jesus. None. You yield yourself to your flesh consistency, consistently, You'll become a slave to it, and it'll be hard to pray. It'll be hard to read your Bible. It'll be hard to come to church. It'll be hard to do all these things. Amen? Strife, according to this verse and according to what we have already talked about in chapter 3, strife is coming from someone who is yielded to that earthly, selfish wisdom that we talked about in chapter 3. Now, let's keep going in chapter two, in verse 2, and I actually want to read it from the New Living Translation because this verse sums things up so perfectly here. Verse 2, you can flip back over to James. Verse 2 of chapter 4. We grab me another one of these? I'm going to need another one. <laughs> verse 2 of chapter 4 reads this way from the NLT. You want what you don't have, So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you won't ask God for it. Sometimes the new living just, it's the perfect little zing. Thank you, trade you. You want what you don't have, so you scheme to kill, scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them. Does that remind you of anything? Sounds exactly like the earthly wisdom we were talking about last week. It's me, it's mine, I want it. Well, why do you want it? Because I want it, and it's mine, and I should have it, and forget you if you don't like that. Right? This is the, this is the behavior of children. It's behavior of babies. This is the three-year-old in the cereal aisle that can't get what they want. It's mine, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. I remember saying to Sophia one time, she wanted something, and I told her she couldn't have it. She said, but Daddy, I want it. I said, I know you want it, but you can't have it. Why? Because you can't have it, because it's not good for you, but I want it. You see, this is the hallmark of immaturity. It's the hallmark of, ch- of childness. Is when It was when they can't differentiate between a want and a need. Kids never have the ability or they struggle until they start to grow a little bit with understanding the difference between a want and a need. I want it and it's mine. And if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to get hostile. That's culture right now. That's that's a culture that's yielded to earthly wisdom instead of heavenly wisdom. You don't have to go far to find out this is true. It's the serial self-promoting spirit that we talked about last week. But now James adds another layer to it. Notice the last phrase. You don't have because you don't ask. 
The reason you don't have something is because you're trying to force something to happen instead of asking God for that thing. You see, you can go to the world and force something, and here's the wild thing, God will let you do it. God will let you do it. He told Israel they didn't need a king. But they said, we want a king. Give us a king. We want it. <laughs> yeah, but I want to be your king. You don't need a king. Yes, we do. We want all the other, all the other kids in the neighborhood have kings. <laughs> all the other nations have a king. Give it to us. We want it. I'm just so glad that my daughter and Addison didn't take any pictures of that. That was awesome. What did God do? God said, okay, I will honor your rebellious free will. Here's a king. Here's what's amazing is that God took something that began in rebellion and redeemed it. And from that line of kings came Jesus. The reason you don't have is because you want to force it instead of asking God. The problem is when we get self-promoting and we try to force stuff, we don't realize we're hurting the body of Christ. Because now the person that's supposed to be my brother, my sister has become my enemy. Why are wars and fights. Where is this coming from? Selfish desire. Verse 3. Let's keep going with the NLT here. Y'all doing okay? The NLT says in verse 3, even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. So you want what only will give you pleasure. A daughter of mine yesterday begged me to take her to McDonald's so that she could get a McFlurry. She said, Dad, I've only had one McFlurry in my life. I really want a second McFlurry. I said, I McLove you. <laughs> and you can't. Because I love your teeth and your body more than you having something that's going to give you that much pleasure. But it's going to hurt you in the long term. Even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Can I tell you something? If you're taking notes, you may want to write this one down. God cares more about why you're asking for something than he cares about what you're asking for. As a parent, I can completely understand this. These same children came to me not a week ago at the soccer match. Dad, can we have $10? What is my first, any good parent already knows the response. What is the first response? Why? What are you going to do with what I'm about to give you? What is your motive? What is it that you intend to do with the thing that you're asking me for? Can I tell you that motives matter to God? Motives matter to God because why? He is more concerned with the condition of your heart than with the satisfaction of your flesh. He's more concerned with the condition of your insides than the satisfaction of your outsides. It's not that he doesn't want you to be satisfied. 
but he cares about motive. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest takeaways from this entire passage today is that God really and truly cares about the motive and the nature behind your intention, behind your action. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to camp here for, for a second and just take a little rabbit trail. James doesn't call what I'm about to say. He doesn't call this out specifically in the text, but it is the conclusion that it leads us to. I want you to follow me here. If your motives, remember, God cares about motive. Everybody say that out loud. God cares about my motive. Amen. God cares about our motives. If your motives can never be called into question by anyone around you, but most importantly, by you, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. If your motives can never be called into question by anyone around you, and this, I mean, this comes right down to the nitty gritty of where we live. If you're a parent, you're a father, you're a mother, and nobody can ever question your motives, ultimately, you don't question your motives either, it's a bad place to be. You're setting yourself up for a downfall. Amen. This is, this is why David, this is why King David writes these kind of verses. Search me, O Lord. <laughs> search, search my heart. It's one of the strongest prayers you can ever pray is to ask God to show you you. Oh, it's tough. It's one, I mean, it's tough, but it is so good and it is so right. Search me, O oh Lord. Lord, show me me. Show me myself. Not being willing to analyze your own motives is a dangerous place to be, and it will empower a couple of undesirable things in your life. Firstly, it will keep you forever in comparison mode. What do I mean by that? If you will keep, excuse me, if you will refuse to question your own motives, you, you assume that everything is right inside with your own thinking, with your own posture of your heart, with your own motives. No, I'm not, I can't be questioned. I'm above reproach. I'm above even questioning. My motives are totally perfect then what's the natural byproduct of that? You, when you don't get what you want, start to compare yourself to everybody that is getting the things they want. You will perpetually live in comparison mode. Secondly, this attitude will always ensure that in your comparison, you come out the victim every time. Every single time. My motive is perfect. I'm undefined. I'm absolutely perfect. I can't even be questioned. My motives are so incredibly flawless. So why isn't it working for me? Let me look around and see all the other people that the, that the word is working for. Let me see all the other people that are getting their prayers answered. How come God doesn't love me? I'm a victim. Every single time. So let me ask this question. Where does that lead to? Go back to verse one. 
Where do wars and strife and fights come from? The unfulfilled desire of your stinky flesh. Amen. Stinky flesh. Hashtag. Your flesh stinks. My flesh stinks. All of our fleshes stink. Let's just decide that once and for all. Amen. Not picking on you. Check your motivation. God cares about your motivation. Now, verse 4, James really turns up the heat. Verse 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses. (laughs) Thank you, James, for kicking me while I'm down. No, I think that he uses this language really intentionally. Again, the Bible doesn't waste words. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's an adulterer do? They turn their back on the one they love. Where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this before? Just listen. Should have had this earmarked in my Bible so it would have made it a little faster. Listen. Jesus is talking. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is Revelation 2, by the way. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your labor, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you've tested those who say they're apostles and turn out not to be, and you've found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore... From where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. How many marriages have left their first love and would quickly get back on track if we would go back to do the first things we did when we fell in love in the first place? Oh man, you went to the gym. When you were trying to put that ring on her finger, you made sure you looked good. You prioritized her. You put her first. You answered her call when it came in. You told your friends, hey, doofus, shut up. My girl's calling me. But then somewhere along the way, we left our first love and we stopped engaging in the same way. James is saying the same thing. I'm absolutely convinced. I don't know why the Holy Spirit has me talking about marriage all the time and using it as an example through this book of James, but it's so pertinent. I'm convinced that, that there's not a marriage that couldn't work if people would go back to prioritizing the other person and loving the other person. 
quick to forgive. Oh, I'm sorry that she hurt you. I'm sorry that he hurt you. Yes, of course, there are patterns of self-destructive behavior. We understand these things. But have you considered forgiveness works? And if you'll walk in love with the other person, instead of looking for your needs to be filled, you'll actually come out on top. And any marriage can, can be rescued. Living with this kind of lack of our first love. Go back to verse four of James. Adulterers and adulteresses do not know friendship with God, or excuse me, friendship with the world is enmity with God. What's, what's, the, what's the fix for this? Repent. Just repent. Just, just, just stop. Say, I've been doing it wrong. I need to repent. Man, I got to keep going. Holy Moses, I'm not getting very far in my notes. Check your motivation. The word for friendship here, I got to do this really quick. I'm sorry. Uh, the word for friendship here is the word philia in the Greek. And it's, uh, it, the basis of it is the word phileo, which is one of the four words in the Greek language for the word love. Eros, phileo, storge, and agape are the four Greek words for love. And this word friendship is rooted in one of those. It's the idea that you can enjoy the things of this world, but you can't love the things of this world. You can't yearn for them because the more you yearn for the things of this world, it pulls you away from your first love, which is your love for God. Now, keep going into verse 5, and he says here, or do you think the, the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is an incredibly, incredibly challenging verse to translate from the Greek. I think the New King James does an okay job, but I don't think it really hits the nail on the head. This is a challenging verse for translators, mostly due to pronunciation or to punctuation. Mostly due to punctuation. The early form of Greek that the, that the Bible is written in is called Koine Greek, and there is no punctuation in Koine Greek. They just wrote. And so that makes it challenging sometimes because you don't know with a colon or a period or a question mark. Those things don't exist. They have to rely on context clues to determine whether the author is asking a question or making a statement. That makes this particular verse a sticky one to translate. So there's two ways you can translate this verse. The beauty is both of them work really well. I love that even when the Bible gets a little challenging to discern, both ways that you can discern it turn out to be really, really good and consistent with the rest of Scripture. Let me read to you what I mean. The New Century version of verse 4 and 5 reads this way. Anyone who wants to be a friend of the world becomes God's enemy. Do you think the Scripture means nothing that says the spirit that God made to live in us wants us for himself alone? The New Living does it as well. It says, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. This interpretation is very consistent with the whole of scripture. It's very consistent with Exodus 34, 14, where the scripture tells us God's a jealous God, meaning that he's interested, he's not interested in sharing your heart with anybody. I remember hearing uh, this, this statement in my household coming up and hearing it at church when I was a young man. God doesn't want much. He just wants everything. He just wants your whole heart. Don't give him 82% of your heart. Give him the whole thing. 
Why? He's a jealous God. He wants everything. He wants everybody's whole heart. He wants your affection. Now, the J.B. Phillips translation takes this verse in a different direction that is uber consistent with the text that it's in. Let me read it to you. It says, anybody, this is verse 4 and 5, anyone who deliberately chooses to love the world is thereby making himself God's enemy. So far, so good. Do you think what the scriptures have to say about this is mere formality? Or do you imagine that this spirit of passionate jealousy is the spirit, capital S, that God has caused to live in us? No, he gives more grace. In other words, do you think that the scripture speaks, you know, with no meaning, with mere formality? Do you think that the spirit that God put on the inside of you is the spirit that is causing and stirring up frustration, jealousy, strife? It's a different way to read that same verse. Both of them fit perfectly. Again, I love the Bible. It's just you can't screw it up no matter how hard you try. Do you imagine that the spirit, this spirit of passionate jealousy, what is that referring to? The last five verses, everything he's talking about, all this flesh stuff. He's saying, do you think that stuff was inspired by the spirit of God that lives in you? No, he gives us grace. He doesn't stir up our flesh, he gives us grace. You see how that's a different interpretation of the same verse? But both of them work. He goes on to verse six and starts to give us some good news. Give me some good news, James. Give me some good news. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Can I tell you something? You need some grace, man. You need some grace. I need some grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Literally all that you have to do in order to arrive at everything you're hoping and believing for is become humble. Now, that's an easy thing to say, but it's a much harder thing to actually do. Humility is more challenging than it sounds, not because of the people around you. You see, we think that humility is difficult because people are difficult. Now, walking in love's tough because that idiot across the table from me, he's a real blockhead. He's tough to love. <clears throat> no, humility's not hard because of the people around you. Humility's hard because of the person in the mirror. <laughs> amen. We're all saying, yeah, amen. Let me give it to you. Humility attracts God's grace. And everything that you really and truly need is actually the result of grace anyway. But can I tell you what I believe James's idea of humility is here? It's repentant for certain. We already covered that. But here's what we don't want to talk about when it comes to humility. Honesty. Can you be truly, authentically, objectively honest with yourself? 
Pastor Jeremy Pearsons says this. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever heard him say. God will always meet you right where you are at, but never where you pretend to be. God will always meet you right where you are at, but never where you pretend to be. God never asks for your honesty because he needs it. As though God's, you know, taking a poll or asking a question. No, he's, he's the infinite maker of heaven and earth. He created the universe. He knows everything. He knew everything before it happened. God knows every detail of the universe that ever has been. He created it all. So he's not trying to get information out of you that he doesn't know. He's not conducting research. When God asks you a question, he doesn't send Gabriel down. Okay, listen, I need you to go down and talk to Brianne. And here's the six questions I want you to make sure you write down her answers. I got to get my head wrapped around what's going on down there. (laughs) That's not why God asks you questions. He doesn't ask you questions for him. He asks you questions for you. And the question is, can you answer the question he asks of you Honestly, the Lord asks for your honesty because you need it. He knows exactly where you're at. He wants you to know where you're at. Guys, this is so, so important. Why does God need me to be honest. Why is this idea of humility hinged upon this idea of honesty? Why is that the crux of the conversation? The reason God needs you to be honest in your humility is so that you can actually make an authentic free will decision to invite his grace to come into your life and fix the problem. You can't come to God with the problem and when he shows you the answer to the problem, act like there's not really a problem because when you do that, he resists the proud. But what does he do to the humble? What does he do to the one that goes, God, I can't do this on my own. I've tried so many times. I can't break free from the addiction. I can't let go of the strife. I really and true, I'm at my wit's end, God. I can't do it by myself anymore. Oh, baby, let me give you some of my grace, you humble, honest thing, you. But I can't do that if I go to God and be like, Lord, I know that I'm supposed to want to stop this sinning. But I really, I think I got it all together. Proud, stiff arm. I mean, there's not, that's a good analogy for the word resist. It's a stiff arm. Your inability to be honest, truly, objectively honest, according to the truth. This is why the Bible is so important, because it's the truth. And if you can see yourself in the truth and see whether or not, yeah, I'm actually measuring up to this or no, I'm not, you can get really honest really fast. And as soon as you get honest is the moment you become dependent on God. And that's really all he wanted to happen in the first place was for you to just be more dependent on him and to just walk with him like Adam and Eve in the garden. Just, Lord, what are we doing today? It's a new day, Father. I'm totally dependent on you. I don't have direction on my own. I need your wisdom. 
But the proud person never gets that far because they don't know how to be honest in their humility. God won't violate your free will and shove grace down your throat until you honestly ask for it and honestly need it. What's the net result of this? The devil can't stand to be around a person who has the grace of God in their life because of honest humility. It's real easy to resist the devil when you have submitted your heart to God. I don't know about you. I'm hungry for some repentance in the house today. I'm hungry for some people to just come to the edge of their self and say, you know what? Without Jesus, man, I've got no reason to boast. I've got no pride. Lord, yeah. Let me come face to face with myself. Let me come face to face with my decisions. Let me come face to face with the reality of where my life really, actually, and truly is. And then I'll know where I need God's grace. And the beautiful thing is, he'll give it to you. Because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You won't earn it because you realized I couldn't earn it if I tried. I came to the honest, humble end of myself. I need God, man. You need Jesus. Would you be willing to give God permission to show you where you need his grace? Would you be willing to pray the David prayer, search me, O God? Because if you would, I can tell you that what comes out of that prayer is an infusion of grace. That is what James is saying when he says, cleanse your hands. Turn your, turn your joy into weeping. You're laughing over here thinking you got it all together and you don't. Get before God. Get on your face. And what's going to happen? You humbly submit yourself to God and he lifts you up. Anything that you lift up and support by human effort will always need to be sustained by that same human effort. But when God lifts you up by his grace, no man can stop it. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. I don't know about you, but this one, this week challenged me to the core. I mean, it just challenged me to the core. I've, I've seen the stories, and, and, and many times I've been the story of the man who won't get honest with God about where he really is. I've watched it happen. The Bible says that pride comes before a great fall. And I don't want you to crash and burn. And Jesus doesn't either. Would you be willing this morning to pray the David prayer, search me, O Lord? Let's stand up to our feet. I want to take a moment as we close the service today.
Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.